business of an alcoholic. Uh, my home group is the Harrisburg Group of Alcoholics Anonymous, and uh, my sobriety date is February 1st of 1981. And this heat feels good on my backside. I have, I have, uh, I've had a sinus infection for the last, matter of fact, I still got it. And, uh, you know, with that comes fever, and, you know, you get chills sometimes. I've got my coat with me. I will take it off and put it on as needed. Um, it's good to be back in South Carolina, but not this far back in South Carolina. This is, this is, this is way back in South Carolina. This is close to Georgia, I think. But uh, I tell you, I have, I have enjoyed I, I enjoyed the, the time. I used to be a member of the traditional group in in Greenville, and that's where I met uh, Daryl and, and Robin. It took me forever, and, and Daryl is a kind gentleman. He's as he's as big as he is kind, and he um, told me his name at every meeting for about a year and a half. And by the time I got it now, Daryl, it was time for me to move, go back to shop. <laughs> but he was kind. Now, I don't have any smart stuff to tell you up here. I got a watch, and I know those benches are hard, and it's cold out here. And uh, so I won't punish you long. But uh, but anyway, I uh, I uh, um, will tell you the, the most uh, uh, important thing I think I have to say this this afternoon, and that's that I believe firmly convinced uh, that that I'm sober by the grace of a loving God who manifests himself in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, and a continuously growing circle of friends like yourself. I learned early that it was uh, a distinct difference between the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. didn't always know that. Now, a lot of the things I remember now, I understand now, I didn't know when I first got here. One of the things I used to hear the old-timers say, and they said a lot of stuff back then, smart stuff. I was convinced that these guys, all they were all retired. Some of them were 40, 50, 60 years old people, you know. And, uh, and uh, all they did was sit at home while I went to work all day and thought up hurtful stuff to say to me when I came to the meeting. And uh, they would say stuff like, uh, now, boy, and that's what they called me. They called me boy. They want to break my anonymity, see. And they said, now, now, <clears throat> said, now boy, it's, it's fellowship will get you dry, but it's the program that gets you sober. I had no idea what they were talking about. But looking back, I can clearly see that my life didn't get a lot better until I started doing the best I could to take the 12 suggested steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's not magic. That's just when the change came for me. I was always scared of something, trying to stop drinking, afraid of the next drink, until I took the steps and continued to take the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. And, uh, you know, one of the things, too, now these guys, back then I couldn't remember, I couldn't read. Now, if I read anything, I forgot it. But if you quoted it from this microphone, I'd say it over and over till I got home. And as soon as I got home, I'd find a book, and I'd look in there to catch you wrong. <laughs> and uh, never caught them wrong, but it got me to look. And one of the things they kept telling me, and, uh, and A.D., A.D. was one of my first sponsors. He just told me over and over and over again. He said, boy, he said, this program is a way of life. And often he would, he would quote right out of the book. He would say, 
A's 12 steps are a group of principles spiritual in their nature, which if practiced as a way of life, can expel the obsession to drink and enable the sufferer to, to become happily and usefully whole. He said, boy, that's what you need. That's the two things you need the most. To be relieved of the obsession to drink and become happily and usefully whole. The fact is, that's the two things I still need the most today. So life got started for me. I was punished by these old timers. Did not like them. You get to the meeting and they already got the seat I want. You know, sitting in the back. I didn't want to get too close to this thing. Now, now I handle AA like I handle baseball. See, I can't geek. I can't see good. So I didn't play in the infield. I always got to the outfield so I'd have time to catch, react to the ball before it got there. And that's the way I handle church and AA. I want the back row, you know, so I'll have time to react. But anyway, these guys, they sit back there, and some of them would actually start sleeping before the meeting got started good, you know. But they had some of them would be of overalls. They were comfortable. They were serene. They had the answers to questions that I hadn't even thought to ask yet. And they'd tell you whether you ask or not, you know. And so and that, that's how life began for me. And uh, I remember one night we were complaining, you know, we complained a lot about DWIs, sheriff, and um, one of these guys walked up, I think his name was Stick, he walked up and he said, now boy, he said, you know, I ain't been charged with drunk driving since I quit drinking. I said, man, that, that is profound, <laughs> you know. I had never connected drunk driving with drinking. I just thought I had a bad day, and everybody picked on me. But I'll tell you what, it's difficult, almost impossible to get charged with drunk driving if you ain't drinking. And it hadn't happened to me since I quit drinking. Well, these guys love me more than I ever knew. They just hurt my feelings a lot. One night I came to the meeting. And A.D., Fisher Park meeting in Greensboro, came walking across the floor, hardwood floor, taking those long steps with those beer overalls on, big ears. I said, man, he, I tell you, if he didn't, he, he's so ugly, he had to drink liquor to feel normal. But he got up to me and said, boy, we've diagnosed your problem. I said, well, it's about time. I'm one of the few young black guys in the meeting, an Army veteran. And I figured what he'd tell me, he said, Dennis, you're young, gifted, and black, and the world will understand you. You really don't need to be alcoholic and alcoholics anonymous, and you don't have to come back to these meetings anymore. But A.D. told me something that night I don't think I'll ever forget. He said, boy, you seem to be suffering from malnutrition between the ears. And he told me I needed some soul food. I had no idea what he was talking about. As a matter of fact, I was too dumb to even be insulted. See, I didn't go through treatment. I didn't get to taper off alcohol on Librium or Valium. I just ended up on the front row of Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, about two weeks later, I figured it out. I said, well, A.D. called me stupid. <laughs> I was so impressed with that, I had to call my sponsor. I called Ivy. I said, Ivy, A.D. called me stupid. He said, Dennis, that's a week and a half ago. I said, well, I just figured it out. And, uh, It took me years to figure out what A.D. said that day. See, A.D. recognized something in me that anybody that knew me had recognized. 
The Army had recognized it. Lever had recognized it. My school teachers had recognized it. My family knew it. And A.D. had figured it out in just a short time. He knew what was obvious to everybody except me. A.D. knew that I had reached that point in my illness where the only way I could feel good is by picking up the very thing that made me feel bad. The only way I thought I could solve my problems is by picking up the very thing that would make the problem worse. The way I deal with my trouble is by drinking the very thing that would create more trouble. Now, that was obvious to everybody except me. See, that's why I need Alcoholics Anonymous. That's why I need a home group. That's why I need a sponsor. That's why I need to be focused on the principles contained in these steps. Because I can't seem to see myself as I am on any given day. I thank God for the inventory steps of this program. Because they give me a systematic way of measuring my thinking, my feelings, my attitude, my actions on a daily basis. So life started for me. And back then, these guys didn't tell you don't drink and go to meetings. They tell you don't drink and tell you exactly what meetings to go to. That's because they was hanging around on the back row of those meetings, too, harassing people, taking up the good seats. And so they allowed me to go to all. I think they told me I didn't have to go to AA every year, every day. They said you got to do your laundry sometime and you got a wife and family. So they had me going to four open meetings, four open, open speaker meetings, and one discussion meeting. Now, that may not work for anybody else, but that's what I needed. As a matter of fact, I hated that, 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 those speaker meetings. I wanted to go to a discussion meeting because I had some stuff you guys really needed to know, you know. <laughs> but they told me not to tell anybody that they knew me yet. They didn't want to ruin their reputation. So going to these speaker meetings, and see, that's what I needed. I needed to listen because I needed to be able to listen to you to see if I identify with the condition that you described. And I started going to these meetings, and after a while, I'll tell you what I heard. I heard the onset. I heard the problem. I heard the solution. But the most important thing I heard was that program of action that brings about the solution. As a matter of fact, that's why I go to meetings today. Because I need to hear the onset, the problem, the solution, and most importantly, the program of action that brings about that solution. I want to know how you stand so. And that's how life started. You know, I, I didn't remember a whole lot back then. I began to remember. My memory came back in my first two years of Alcoholics Anonymous. I didn't know my way around Greensboro. Well, and I learned my way around Greensboro my first two years in Alcoholics Anonymous with a city map and an AA meeting schedule. That's how I learned my way around. And, uh, you know, I guess y'all noticed a woman came with me. Now, I want y'all to let y'all know I got a wife, I got a driver's license, and I ain't got my gold tooth yet. I'm working on it. And, 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 and if you go with me out to the truck after this, I got my last pay stub. I'd like for you to meet my wife, Libra. But that's how it started for me. It started going to Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, some of my memory came back. I was born and raised in Shelby, North Carolina. I was raised on a cotton farm up there. And... Uh, 
And I was ashamed of that for a long time until I got sober enough in Alcoholics Anonymous to realize that anybody born in Shelby, North Carolina in 1953 was born on a cotton farm. That's all they had. And, and I, uh, I spent a lot of time. I am great. I had a, I had a beautiful childhood. I, I had a good time. I don't think, I just had a lot of fun. And, you know, a lot of things happened then that I resented. Now, looking back with a new attitude, I'm grateful for Well, you know, time, life started fast. Mom didn't have any brothers, so her first son, me, was just what she had wanted all her life. She didn't have any uncles, just one uncle. So on that side of the family, I was real special. Dad's side of the family, I was just another running of meal, probably going to be a drunk, and uh, problems just to begin with. But anyway, started having problems right off the bat. All these girls hanging around, and I realize now that uh, they just love me. That's all. They just love me. They want me. They want me to include me in things. You know, they paint their fingernails for Sunday school on Saturday night. And I'd be standing there looking and say, well, Dennis, you know, boys don't paint their fingernails. I said, well, I can see. I said, well, they paint their thumbnails. They do it to me. Do it to me. You know? And they, so I'd end up, I was the only little boy with two red thumbnails on. And I'd notice that thing. I'd try to hide and I'd eat it off, you know, and I'd end up with it on my mouth. And then I'd get in trouble for eating too, uh, eating uh, fingernail polish. Where'd you get that from, boy? But anyway, that started. Then I started wearing glasses when I was uh, five years old. Now, I hadn't figured that one out yet. I couldn't read. I don't know what they wanted me to see so bad, but I had some glasses. <laughs> Learned later on, I had a, one of these lazy eyes. You know, I look up, it look back down, and, and I look over that way, it look over this way. Then I got an eyelid that, uh, that doesn't always close. But I don't see any of that stuff. I don't even know what the eye is doing. I just, you know, uh, uh, matter of fact, I didn't know it did that until I got in the first grade, and and a guy named Albert Chambers just smiled at me all day. I said, well, I'm making friends already, you know. And finally, about 2 o'clock, he just leaned over the table and said, do that again. <laughs> Man, what are you talking about, you know? And then, as uh, a matter of fact, I had to quit drinking in bars because of that eye. You know, my, uh, I, last time I drank in a bar was in Gastonia, North Carolina. I was in the Army, and, you know, there's always a four-foot-six guy on the other end that's looking for somebody my size to pick a fight with, you know. And they won't fight midgets their own size. They're like people like me and Daryl, you know. So I'm sitting there drinking. He's sitting there drinking. We're on opposite ends of the bar. And you know how these short people always start fights, you know. I guess the first thing that gets drunk on me is my eye and starts looking at people. Now, you know what short people say. What are you looking at? So I told him the truth. I said, man, I don't have no idea what I'm looking at. And so I, we get thrown out of the box, and I tell the guy the truth, you know. But we start growing up. And you know, one of the things I like about times back then is I, I was given a good spiritual indoctrination in Sunday school. Dad was superintendent of Sunday school. Dad had the kind of faith that old-timers in this program developed. Dad didn't seem to get real excited about my mistakes, about my stupidity. He just sat there and smoked our cigarettes and, until we moved out and he quit smoking again. You know, he's just, he's real easy. He's going. But then he was big enough. He was dangerous. You know, I, I remember I, I was raised on the front row of Sunday school right in front of him. And even in Sunday school, I just could not act right. I just could not follow the rules. And, and I sat there in Sunday school and began 
to develop the very character defects that would keep me consumed by my illness for a long time. The first thing I learned to do was manipulate people. I learned how to act like they wanted me to act, say what they wanted me to say, do what they wanted me to do, until they quit looking. Then I'd make my move. Of course, Dad's had long arms and fat fingers. He'd thump you, pow, you know. And you kind of go into a coma, come back out, you know. And uh, I said, well, I guess I'll try again next time. So I had to plan better. The next thing I learned to do was memorize things. And uh, it doesn't take, if you go to Sunday school every Sunday, you automatically memorize some Bible lessons. I spout that stuff off, and they say, well, you know, you've got a fine son. I said, well, ain't he, though? Ain't he got a fine son? But, you know, those probably are my worst liabilities today. And uh, because I've been around AA long enough to know how to act. I know how to act even when I'm hurting inside. When I've been on the road two and three days a week, when I hadn't made but one meeting, hadn't talked to my sponsor in two or three days, and they say, well, come in the meeting Grab a cup of coffee, shake a few hands, smile a little bit, and ease on the front row. People leave you alone. And, you know, it doesn't take long to memorize parts of the big book, parts of the 12 and 12, so you can sound real good in discussion meetings. But it doesn't say rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly memorized our book. It's followed the path. Now, I've never wanted to do anything. Back in Shelby, we were integrated in Shelby before anybody else ever thought about it. And... Uh, we just picked cotton together, worked together, rode the same pickup truck to the store together, and we were back there loving on each other and didn't know it. And we didn't know the civil rights movement was going on, so we was in, we were picking cotton when the news came on, so we missed the civil rights movement. <laughs> so we were back there loving on each other, having fun. You know, if, you, if, uh, if you're 13 years old and don't hate white and black people, you know, it's about too late to start, you know, so... School's integrated. It wasn't no big deal to us. We didn't care. You're just going to school with your friends. But I began to feel different in eighth grade. We had a farewell party before the school's integrated, and I felt different from other black people. First thing I learned at that party is that I couldn't dance. So I, I never had needed to. You don't dance in the cotton field. You don't dance in Sunday school. So I don't have any reason to dance. And then I didn't have a cool walk like the rest of the black guys had. You know, black guys get about 13 or 14. We dip a little bit when we walk. You know, I didn't do that. I had been pulling that cotton sack, and it took the dip out of my hip. And, and then uh, they were listening to music like Martha Reason, the Vandellas, the Temptations, Gladys Knight and the Pips. And I had been laying in the bathtub listening to a country music station out of Gaffney. I listened to Buck and the Buckaroos and Conway Twitty and the Twitty Birds. Merle Haggard and the Strangers. That sound like my kind of people. And so here I am, 13 years old, and uh, I'm black and I'm not cool. And uh, I'm a soul brother and I don't have soul. But now that summer, I acquired some. I had my first drink between my 8th and ninth grade year. Me and my friend laid out in my, his grandfather's corn crib. And after playing some basketball, we, we found some liquid corn. He had a little, I think it was an old crow or, or a Kentucky gentleman, one of them. We didn't spend a whole lot of time reading it. <laughs> we drunk that liquor. And man, I'm going to tell you, my life changed that day. 
I think I had my first spiritual awakening. I sat right there in the middle of my Converse tennis shoes, and I became a changed man. The first thing that happened, I started tingling around my kneecaps. Man, that felt good. I had never experienced anything like that before. Then I started laughing at my own jokes. I couldn't even tell a decent joke before then. And, man, I said, you know, I could feel that eye. And after a while, I had 20-20 vision, too. I could see two of everything. I said, man, I had been missing things, you know. And we went on down the old dirt road and here between the church and the, and, and, and the house. There's some plum bushes there. We hid up under there, and we just talked and philosophized like Aristotle and folk like that, you know. And talked about what we'd do if those Brentley girls came over the hill. They didn't come over the hill, and we didn't get to do it. But uh, it didn't bother me a bit because I didn't know how to do it. But, uh, but I knew I had to have some more of that stuff. And, you know, I'm, I'm smart. I don't have to ask anybody anything. I just know stuff. I'm, as a matter of fact, I'm, I'm, I'm a borderline genius. And, and, and matter of fact, just the thought of drinking liquor runs my IQ up to about 160. <laughs> Super genius. And somehow that summer... I was so impressed by that that I was going to make my own wine. I was going to make me some wine. We had moved off the farm then. They had some wild cherries in the backyard. That's what they said they were. Boil those things up, let it cool, pour it in a mason jar. And then I began to think, how does the alcohol get in this stuff? Couldn't figure it out. But I knew alcohol would not get in it while you were looking, so it had to be dark. So I dug a hole in the backyard covered that stuff up. Went back and sat on the back porch for about five minutes. <laughs> uh, ought to be ready now. That's long enough. So I drank that first one. Didn't do anything. Had it full of sugar. That stuff was nasty. But I kept that last one because a, a couple of days later, I, I was just disappointed that that didn't produce a high. And I poured a little rubbing alcohol to get it started, you know. And, and I drank that sometime later. And none of that produced a high. It produced the worst case of gas I ever had in my life. But... I'm already looking for this feeling again. Now, I went to high school on a college preparatory track expecting to play basketball. I drank myself from a college preparatory track to a vocational track to a general track and barely got out of high school, fast-talking teachers, begging them to pass me. While I laid out of school, drank wine and shoplifted. Drank myself out of the athletic program in two years. Drank myself off a school bus route in a year and 19 days. I took just as naturally to drinking wine as ducks do the water. I think I'm one of those guys that just can't, just naturally cannot drink. There are a lot of theories out these days. I'm amazed in Alcoholics Anonymous what I hear sometimes. I hear, you know, people talk about... Uh, uh, they just drank too much too long. Some say they were born alcoholic. I heard a speaker last night say he was born alcoholic. Might have been. Had one here, heard one lady say he, he was alcoholic on his first drink. Man, I'd have hated that. You know, I, I need a little time in grade. need a little time to drink. And then I heard, you know, that I believe in the disease concept, the genetic predisposition. I heard people talk about deposits of tetrahydroxyquinoline on the hypothalamus. You know, most drunks don't even know they got a hypothalamus. You know. One of the most recent theories I've heard is that uh, it's a pleasure disorder. I said, well, they wasn't drinking Thunderbird, because I sure wasn't having no pleasure out of it. I'm laughing. 
but you know, I, I got my alcoholism the old way. I got mine drinking liquor, and uh, that's what I did. I just drank wine every chance I got. And by the time I got out of high school, I had been confronted with my alcoholism four times, and the first of those was by an English teacher named Lois Sorrells. Lois was a minister's daughter, taught me three out of four years in English. She kept my papers, my freshman papers, and she threw me out of class one day from one of my pranks. And while I was in the hallway wandering around reading the graffiti on the wall, she said, Dennis, your work has gotten worse. Look at these papers. Look at your attendance record. And then she said, Dennis, I think you have a drinking problem. I said, well, you know, maybe I do, but you're here to teach school. You know what I'm talking about? You know, they got somebody else to do the drinking stuff. I just discounted that. But, you know, the next three people that said anything about my drinking were 17 years old, just like me. The first one was Sylvia Spears. She said, Dennis, I think you're alcoholic. Another minister's daughter. You know what I'm thinking? I need to stay away from these preachers, don't I? <laughs> then there was Linda Lowe, who said, actually pinned in my angle. Dennis, you're a nice guy. Stay off the booze and everything will be okay. And then there was Janice. Janice wrote in my annual something that it took me to I got the Alcoholics Anonymous to understand. She just pinned in my annual in big, bold writing. Dennis Nance, someday reality who hits you in the face and you won't know what to do. It took me years to figure out what they were talking about. I drank for ten more years. It took me ten more years of drinking to see the Dennis Nance that they saw. See, that's why I need Alcoholics Anonymous. That's why I need a home group. That's why I need a sponsor. That's why I need to be surrounded by people who love me enough to tell me what they see. Because I can't see myself as I really am at any given time. I need to be missed when I miss a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. Because I can't see myself as I am. I can't see the pattern that you see. So I got mad. I was going to join the army. I did join the army. Wasn't doing anything else, so... And that always told me I couldn't join the Army because my eyes were too bad. And uh, I went to see my local recruiter. He said I had the best eyes he had seen in two or three months. And, uh, and I was on the bus Monday morning. Before I went home, I, before I went there, I had to go home and hurt my parents' feelings. Cause see, they, they, I'm mad at them now because they want me to do the things any responsible parent would want their kid to do. Go see the date, come home at a reasonable hour. Go to a technical school, go to church, further their education, quit crawling in the bathroom when they're drunk at 5 o'clock in the morning. That's all they wanted me to do, the things that any responsible parent wants the kids to do. And I got mad at them, and I joined the army. We got home, Dad sitting on the front porch smoking my cigarettes again. said, Dad, I just joined the army. He said, son, you're not doing anything else. Go tell your mother. I said, well, maybe that didn't hurt his feelings bad enough. Maybe I acted too soon here. So I went and told Mom. Mom started crying, hollering, rolling all over that bed. <laughs> yeah, I finally got her back now. She'll miss me now. That's right. They'll miss me now. That's right. I enjoyed it. I went back to my bedroom, sitting there, listening to her cry. Teach them to treat me like that. They'll miss me. I got down to Fort Jackson about four weeks later. I was crying, hollering, rolling all over my bed. <laughs> in bad shape. Done a whole bunch of them. You know, I realize now God has had his hand on me for a long time. My first year in, in, in the Army, I spent uh, six months in training, six months in Vietnam, and on my 19th birthday, I'm back home. Married Lieber 10 days later, August 26, 1972. 
went out to Oklahoma and unknowingly began to do the very things that alcoholic families do. Fussing, fighting, chasing the paycheck. And I'm not talking about just heavy arguments. I'm talking about physical fights, you know. And I'll tell you, when you're drinking Thunderbird, you lose a lot of them fights, you know. <laughs> but, but, you know, we lived like that for so long. We learned how people that loved each other treated each other in Alcoholics Anonymous. Tell you what, we were shaking your hands and hugging you a long time before we were doing it to each other. So, eight years of military service, I've done, done pretty well. Made rank pretty fast, but this, you know, my alcoholism started catching up with me. Now, looking back, I don't think I would have ever had to go to Europe had I not started in care, you know, having in alcohol-related infractions of the law. I had five of them. I had five of them. And uh, the Army always covered that up by transferring me, putting me on restriction, getting me out of jail, because you could not be a nuclear weapons artillery gun chief and be an alcoholic. <laughs> and then after that, I spent two years on drill sergeant status. Well, you can't be a drill sergeant and be alcoholic. But by the time that eight-year hitch was up, they were going to send me to Korea to get rid of me. Well, Libra didn't mind. She's trying to get rid of me, too. And, you know, it doesn't take me long to figure out when people are trying to get rid of me. See, by this time, I'm almost drinking backwards. I'm drinking uncontrollably. I didn't know that. I remember training troops all day. And I'd go home and run five miles to stay in shape and then drink uh, two-fifths of Boone Farm Strawberry Hill. See, everybody else drunk Gatorade. I, I was a Strawberry Hill man. That's what replenished my fluids. And uh, so by that time, I'm up for two discharges at the same time because I refused to go to Korea and uh, decided to get out. And that's when our alcohol, that's when my alcoholism became pronounced. See, because Lieber came back to Shelby, and I went back out to Fort Seal, Oklahoma, to do my last 45 days in the Army. I found out during that time that I was just as miserable alone as I was with Lieber and the children there. Now, I used to tell people, I sold that house in Oklahoma. I didn't sell that house in Oklahoma. A kind gentleman kept that house from going in foreclosure. We were able to salvage $4,400 out of a $21,000 house. And uh, gave me that money cash in my hand. I sent Lever $1,300 of that money and woke up in what I know now to be my first recognizable blackout. Driving that 77 Bonneville around on the edge of a wheat field in Hobart, Oklahoma, 50 miles from where I'm supposed to be. That was the basis for many an argument in our family, because I didn't know where that money was. I didn't understand blackouts. I knew I hadn't been robbed. I just didn't know where the money went. Well, you know, I came back to Oklahoma, came back to North Carolina like a good drunk supposed to. I came back home broke, drinking wine and writing bad checks. You know, in the pre-Alanon days, Libra's real sensitive. She says, uh, I show up. She hadn't seen me in a month or two, and she says, Dennis. She didn't say, Dennis, how are you doing? She said, where's that money? <laughs> I couldn't tell her. 
And that was a basis for many, many a point of contention until we had made considerable progress in AA and Al-Anon, respectively. So Lever said, well, you know, i got a house in Greensboro. I'm, I'm leaving you. And uh, she got in the car and left me. And I got in the other car and followed her, you know. If you're going to leave me, I'm going to see you do it, you know. <laughs> then she got a job once she got to Greensboro. I applied for one job a day. If they didn't hire me, my next stop was a liquor store on Church Street. I didn't have time to be begging people for jobs. I'm a veteran, you know. Eventually, I was hired at a local prison unit in McLeansville, uh, North Carolina. It was a mental health satellite. They had psychiatric services there, a processing unit. And, of course, I, I got caught coming in the front gate at 5 o'clock in the morning smelling like liquor. And you know what they did? As part of my disciplinary action, they put me on second shift. No big deal. Because I, I adjusted well. And I said, oh, I'm already heading work here a week, and I'm already getting promoted. And so I, uh, I kind of like second shift. You go to work at 2 o'clock, you got plenty of time to get ready. You can get kind of drunk before you get there. Get off at 10 o'clock, and all of a sudden it occurred to me, what rational drunk is going to go home at 10 o'clock if he's already out of the house? Keep going. And that's what I did. Of course, I eventually got put on third shift. And... Third shift was the ultimate shift for a drunk like me. That way I could work all night and drink all day and maximize the use of my time. But I started seeing little fuzzy things crawling around the baseboards in the dormitory at night. And by this time, my eyesight had got so good, nobody saw them but me. And, and, but if I took a look at them, they'd disappear. And then I'd see bubbles floating through the air sometime, you know, and I'd start watching them. And, and by that time, I got pretty smart. I noticed everybody, everybody didn't see those fuzzballs. And I knew some fellow people couldn't see uh, the bubbles either. So I'd watch you and see if you were looking at them. If you weren't looking at them, I quit looking at them. Well, <laughs> my whole family's getting concerned about my drinking and my violence and... Uh, of course, I didn't see it that way. I just saw my, I was just right about everything, and the world just didn't do me like I was supposed to be done. I'm a first-class citizen, and people just won't treat me right. I also know, looking back, I can clearly see that as my alcoholism progressed, my relationship with people, my relationships with people deteriorated, my concept of God deteriorated, and my level of honesty deteriorated. I just couldn't tell the truth. When I got here, I remember people asking me, Dennis, have you ever been charged with a DWI? Have you ever been charged with uh, alcohol-related assault? I said, no, not me. Well, the truth is, I've been charged many times. I've just never been convicted. And my level of honesty deteriorated so terribly bad that I thought that if I was not convicted, I didn't do it. And I had done every bit of that. It took me about three years to get healthy enough to accept responsibility and own up to all that stuff. So, I was invited for home for Thanksgiving dinner in 1980. Uh, after I got there, I found out that uh, it was a kind of a family get-together to discuss my alcoholism. And they wanted me to talk to the minister out at the church that I was born and raised in. And I promptly cussed them all out, started a big family argument, and ended up coming out of my next recognizable blackout on uh, 85 headed north. And that night I think I had that moment of clarity we hear a lot about in Alcoholics Anonymous. 
See, in 1975, my wife's uncle, Dan, had gotten sober in this strange thing called Alcoholics Anonymous. We didn't know much about it. Matter of fact, we didn't know anything about it. We never had known anybody to get sober. We knew Dan was a town drunk when we were growing up. Dan was unemployed, unemployable. He had been married and divorced, don't know how many times, never had driver's license. Had a skill, but stayed dirty and unemployed all the time. So um, I'm thinking, you know, uh, once I get to Greensboro, I'm going to ask Dan about this thing called alcoholism. Well, I get to Greensboro, and I say, well, you know, I don't need to ask Dan about the thing called alcoholism. I can quit on my own. Well, Dan comes by. I believe God was working in my life a long time before I recognized it. And being scared that Lee was going to leave me, I went out to check my car, came back in, and uh, Dan is a... You know, I said, Dan, you know, make yourself at home. Well, you know, don't tell drunks that if you don't mean it, because Dan had laid down on my couch and went to sleep. <laughs> I hated people that could do that. But on the way back in, I saw some pamphlets in Dan's car, an old faded-out big book. You could barely make out Alcoholics Anonymous on it. And you know, the first thing I did was check Dan's car, because I can't ask for help. That means I'm weak. But I'll tell you what, if I could have gotten that car, I stole that book. But the car was locked. I went in, I asked Dan, I said, Dan, tell me about this thing called alcoholism. And Dan got up, sat up on that couch, and talked for what seemed like two hours. I'm thinking, man, he's, he's got to breathe sometime. <laughs> and, and, and finally he said, Dennis, if I dial a number, will you talk? I said, Big Dan, if you just shut up, I'll talk. And, and he told me about this guy named James. Said he wanted me to be in his office at 9 o'clock that Monday morning. Well, I went down there. And Dan and James talked to me similarly to what I'm talking to you today. He talked about his alcoholism. Talked about being locked up, neglected his family, trying to quit time and time again, not being able to stay quick, getting DWIs, assault charges, neglecting his health, abusing his kids. Now I'm thinking, I'm not going to tell him, him, him. He just wants me to start talking and he'll run in here and have me arrested, you know. I'm not saying anything. And uh, before I could get out of there, I was uncomfortable. And they gave me a little 20-question test. I made 100 on that. Uh, I could always test these, you know. And then he gave me a brand-new book. That's what I wanted. So I could go home, lay across my bed, read that book, and not have to come to meetings like you poor people. Because I was not that bad. I, I just drank a little bit sometimes, you know. And then he asked me what I thought a terribly intrusive question. He asked me if my wife and kids were coming to counselor. Oh, man. I said, now they've messed up my drinking. Now they're going to mess up my not drinking. <laughs> now they didn't want them down there. Because Libra, I know she just wants to get somewhere so she can tell everybody about my drinking. And my children, I think they were five and seven then. You can't trust kids that young. They'll tell the truth if you're not careful. You know, <laughs> you have to keep them away from professional people and... So that's where it started. Libra went to a couple of sessions, went right into Al-Anon. Man, I'll tell you, you know, she always has been a little bouncy, but she's just gotten mouthy, confrontive. Dennis, I'm going to Al-Anon. Every Monday night is just a fight. I'm going to Al-Anon. If you want to go to AA anywhere else, you need to make arrangements for the children. You know, you can take them with you. It's an open meeting. It's about time you do that. You're their father. And my deal was I just started an argument 
And while she's crying, I just back right on out the driveway, stay going all night. Well, she wouldn't argue with me. I'd smart off, she'd just get in the car, close the door, back right on that driveway, and go right to Alma. Well, about two or three months later, she comes in. Dennis, I want to go to Bonnie Dillon. Look, what is Bonnie Dillon? She said, well, it's Al Nahn retreat. I said, well, Lee, how much does that cost? She, my wages were garnished by the United States Bankruptcy Court for my first 21 months sober. So I know it don't take money to stay sober. A little bit later, she comes in, Dennis, I want to go to White Oak. Well, what is White Oak? She said, Al Nahn retreat. Well, ain't y'all got any regular meetings, you know? <laughs> so how much does that cost? She tell me, I said, Lee, we can't afford that. She said, Dennis, I can't afford not to. Get in the car, and she leaves. Made me so mad, I started hanging around AA meetings. <laughs> I like them meetings where you got the coffee pot and, and the refreshments all in the fr one corner, you know. I sit back there and eat a little bit. You know, groceries are a little short at our house, you know. Something warm to eat, not a bad deal. After about two weeks, I got to feel sorry for y'all. Y'all piling over alcohol in your life, it become unmanageable. I said, that's what's wrong with them. I knew something was wrong with them. They can't drink liquor like me. And, uh, and then I, I couldn't take step two. Uh, step two really kind of offended me. It implied that my behavior might be insane. Uh, that how can I be restored to something that I had lost? I am not insane. You know, I thought everybody parked their car block up the street so the roof pole man can't find it. That's not insanity. That's survival. Everybody come home sometime, you can't get the key in the door, you go sleep in the backyard. That's survival. That's not insanity. Couldn't take step three because I didn't trust God. By this time, my thinking is he's just after me, trying to catch me running from one liquor house to the other one, and he's going to hit me with that big fly swatter from the sky, and that'll be the end of dinner's name. So I said, maybe step four is a good place for me to start. And... uh but people won't mind your business when they see you doing well. They just won't mind their own business. You know, they notice that I'm sitting there. And say, well, Dennis, you've been coming to meetings for a while now. That's right. Say, have you got a sponsor yet? No, I ain't got a sponsor. So are you working the steps? Oh, yeah, I'm working the steps. I'm already on step four. Yeah. So, Dennis, you taking these steps without a sponsor? I said, well, I can do that. I said, well, no, you don't need to do that. So what you need to do is get you a sponsor. And then I come to the meeting next Monday night. I'm going to one whole meeting a week. You know, that's enough. And Dennis, have you got a sponsor yet? No, I ain't got a sponsor yet. Next week. Dennis, have you got a sponsor yet? Have you tried James? No, I ain't tried James. Well, James is 6'9", weighs about 320. You know, his afro is bigger than me. I don't want to leave James sponsor like that. And, uh, man, I'm done these numbers, but I start looking around. It's that big a deal, or maybe I need to start getting a sponsor. I start looking. I ain't looking hard, but I'm looking. Because something's wrong with everybody I find, you know. They, they either ain't black enough, they ain't cool enough, they ain't got enough education, the fingerprints are on the wrong on side, something's wrong with everybody. And uh, by this time, everybody's bugging me. They, so I, I change home groups. I go over the east side. So maybe over the east side, they don't bother people about sponsorship. You know? And uh, come in, and, and here comes a, 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 a Margaret Galloway. Looks at me and says, "You ain't me. Who's your sponsor?" So I ain't got a sponsor, you know. But this time, Libra's saying, "Dennis, if you got a sponsor, they say you're supposed to have a sponsor." They about to drive me to drinking, but I'm scared to go to the liquor store because you know what the clerk's gonna say? It's a bottle like you got a sponsor, <laughs> you know. And uh, so. Uh, it got me so frustrated, I figured I'd sponsor myself for a little while. 
I sponsored myself for 81 days. Counted every one of them. Had a successful career there. See, when, you, when I was sponsoring myself, I didn't have arguments. My, me and my sponsor had complete harmony, you know what I mean? No, 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 no differences. And, and then what, what happened is me and my sponsor ended up 140 miles from home up in Rutherford County. We were drunk and naked. And, uh, uh, that's, that's, what that's, that's what that self-sponsorship got me. You know? It might work for some other people, but it didn't work for me. My baby sister drove me back to Greensboro. And I'm sitting over there with the coat and vest left off of a three-piece suit. And I was afraid she was going to look over there and say, Dennis, where are your clothes? But she never did. She just drove. And I don't know what she I don't know what I was told her. She, I, I was just pretty good, used to lying on demand, but I, I did not have a lie for that. And on February 1st, 1981, I've done the only thing I know I've done right since I've been in Alcoholics Anonymous. I came back. You know what those old guys said? I said, boy, we've been waiting on you. I'd have gave anything not, not to hear that. And after the meeting, they invited me to a little meeting they were going to have after the meeting. And uh, I was glad. I was glad they finally recognized my, my abilities and my talents. And uh, until I got to the meeting, I found out I was the subject of the meeting. And, uh, but they talked to me in a language that I can understand. You know, when they ain't got your insurance money and your job's money and your money, they can, they can talk to you in a language that you understand. When I left that meeting at night, I had the basis for my recovery. And these guys just asked me, point blank, Dennis, did you ask God to keep you sober the day you drank? And I told the truth. I said no. I don't know why I said that. But, you know, since then I realized the truth doesn't take a whole lot of time to tell the truth. doesn't take a whole lot of words to tell the truth. You can usually tell the truth in just one or two words. Yes, no, I don't know, I'll see. He said, it's apparent to me that you can't keep yourself sober. How do you expect to stay sober if you don't use this program that God has given you, the people that God surrounded you with, and prayer and meditation? Another lady named Flora gave me a 24-hour day book and told me how she opened and closed her day with that book. I went home that night. I've known since then, and I knew this morning when I woke up that Dennis Nance can't keep Dennis Nance sober. I'm going to need Alcoholics Anonymous to do it. Second thing I know is Dennis Nance can't replace his alcohol with any other mood-altering chemical. It's got to be total abstinence for me. Third thing I know is Dennis Nance is going to have to effect and maintain a relationship with God as he understands him or as he misunderstands him. And the 12 steps is the best way I've found to do that. And the fourth thing I know is that Dennis Nance is going to have to get a sponsor and use that sponsor to take these steps and apply these principles to my life. Hadn't had a drink since. Life has changed tremendously. I don't need to tell you that. You know that. Still married to the same woman I married. Been through all this alcoholism with me. Kids literally raised in Alateen. So I've been the benefactor of not just Alcoholics Anonymous, but I know the power and the beauty and the healing of Al-Anon and Alateen.
I've been able to experience that, and I appreciate that. I think the families deserve so much to get well, just like we do. Well, Lever and I, you know, we've been married since we were 18, 19 years old. We kind of leapfrogged each other through college. The kids finally grew up and grew out, which is a good thing. <laughs> Both of us have meaningful employment. And I think that I'm one of those people that have to be in a position where I'm focused on helping God's people because I'm so selfish if I don't, I'll start focusing back on me. And I cannot tell you the numerous minutes and hours, days that I've spent self-consumed feeling sorry for me. I would think if some if a psychologist had, had diagnosed me back then, I think they would have diagnosed me depressed. And it ain't a whole lot of difference between me and it ain't a whole lot of difference between self-pity and depressed. I don't know that anybody that doesn't indulge in self-pity that don't get depressed. But I've been able to, I've been just blessed. blessed. Don't have enough time to tell you about all the good things that happen. But I'll tell you one thing. They happen because I had people that would not take no for an answer. They insisted that I take the steps. They insisted that I mop floors. They insisted that I make coffee. They insisted that I give something back as soon as I was able to. And they insisted that I work this program as much at home as I did in these rooms. Heard my first sponsor tell Lieber one time. Said, that boy gives you any problem, you call me. And I'm thinking, what's a 72-year-old going to do with a young 27-year-old man like me? Then I thought for a while, you know, that boy has been sober 30 years. You know, he might call GSO and have my sobriety revoked. I better, I better, leave, him, better leave him alone. Better leave him alone. Well, I've been a very poor student in high school. I was able to go back home and go back and, and, and complete some educational goals and then able to support Libra and, and, and hers. And, you know, I'll tell you what, the joy of my life now is, is my, grand, my, my grandchildren. We're not as close to my son's uh, children because uh, he uh, has a, a different religion, and not strange, just different. And so we don't interact a lot. But you know, our relationship is as such, when they do visit, they'll get just close enough to tell me everything I need to know. My grandson, on the other hand, is bossy and around most of the time. Likes to ride the tractor. He'll go to sleep on that lawn tractor. Try to get him off over, he'll wake up get back on. <laughs> I just love them. I'm pretty sure that I'm, and I'm pretty satisfied that I've infected the gene pool of the United States for the next 50 years. Somebody's going to have to deal with some drunks again, you know. <laughs> but now, oftentimes I think, you know, another thing that's changed too, just recently, I chose to affiliate myself with the church again. I finally grew enough spiritually in Alcoholics Anonymous to learn to appreciate my religious training. And a while back, um, Libra and I were asked to uh, join the deacon and deaconess memory, uh, ministry at the church. You know, things do really do come full circle. They really do come full circle. Here's a guy that was raised in church, rebelled against the church, hated everything they did. And now, because of Alcoholics Anonymous, I'm able to give something back. 
relationships with my mothers and my, my mother and my sisters have been inherited. That's another blessing. You know, I was in Shelby at a funeral just uh, Thursday, and uh, one of my sisters said, Dennis is sick. He just didn't look right. You know, if I was sick in the past, she'd have let me die. <laughs> she wouldn't have cared. <laughs> These are two sisters that never wrote me a letter when I was in Vietnam. That's how bad they hated me. My brother says he's my best friend. I'm saying, man, you're, either your standards are low or you need some more friends or something. <laughs> but life today is beautiful. I never thought. Now, it doesn't mean that I don't have any problems. I still have problems with the neighbors, ain't enough money. But I'll tell you what I've learned in my marriage. Libra can't argue by herself. So if I'll shut up, that cuts off the arguments. <laughs> I've learned a whole lot from you. The most precious thing I have today is my relationship with the God of my understanding. And I know that I can keep that. I know that that will improve if I will continue to affiliate myself with you and follow the instructions that's contained in the 12 Steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. Thank you all and God bless you. Boy, you're tall, Dennis. Um, I'll throw a few logs in the fire. Please feel free to stick around and have some more fellowship. We've got the shelter till 5 o'clock. Thanks, everybody, for coming. Um, please don't jump in there and start cleaning up like mad people because uh, we'll, we'll get it done. And um, just enjoy the fellowship. And thanks again, everybody, for coming. Um, Dennis especially, we appreciate you coming and talking today. Thank you.